you're listening to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast, where we dive into holistic nutrition, biomedical treatments, functional medicine, low-toxicant living, and developmental strategies with a special focus on children with complex picky eating, developmental delays, and neurodevelopmental disorders. I'm your host, Shandy Lasky, integrative speech-language pathologist, pediatric feeding specialist, functional nutritional therapy practitioner, and epidemic cancer certified health coach. Together, we are changing the conversation around how we view, discuss, prevent, and treat these childhood epidemics. I am so honored to have your time and attention today. Thank you for joining me and for all of your support. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only and should never be misconstrued as medical advice or a replacement for individualized care from your trusted providers. Now, without any further ado, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast, episode 15, Autism and Complex Picky Eating. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. I'm so grateful for your continued support. If you're new here, welcome. I'm happy to have you joining me to listen and learn today. How are you? How are you doing today? I hope that you're well. I know that that's rhetorical. You can't really answer, but I like to just take a moment and, um, you know, in case no one's asked you today, I hope that you're well. It is a rainy, dreary cozy day here in Denver. It's very spring. (laughs) It's one of those dreary spring days. It's gray, but that's okay. We don't get too many of those here in Denver. Um, It is my first day back to work after a really wonderful Michigan trip. I went home to visit my family. Um, Well, actually, I went home for a wedding. One of my best friends from childhood was married and Um, she got married in our hometown and so I got to stay the week with my family, with my parents and it was just a really, really lovely time and, um, because of the pandemic restrictions, she actually was able, she, she, unfortunately she had to change her original venue, but she asked if she could take photos out at my parents' property. So that was really extra special too. So anyways, (laughs) There's a little bit of personal. Yes, I took the took last week off the podcast um, just because I was traveling and wanted to have my whole focus be on family and being with loved ones and, you know, I still being available for my clients, of course, but took a step back from content creation and now I'm back. So, feels good to be back and energized and inspired and I was just so grateful for my time there and um, but I'm glad to be jumping back into the groove of things so welcome back if you are a returning listener I hope that you didn't miss me too much last week (laughs) in this episode episode 15 of speaking of health and wellness the podcast season one I wanted to let you know that this is going to be the final episode of this season. Um, And today I'm going to be exploring complex picky eating in autism spectrum disorders using my signature complex picky eating paradigm that I've discussed here on the podcast a few times. The complex picky eating paradigm is a Venn diagram that I originally developed for my upcoming online course, Naturally Navigating Picky Eating. 
It is a framework to how I view, discuss, and address the underlying causes of complex picky eating as a pediatric speech-language pathologist and an integrative feeding specialist and a functional nutritional therapy practitioner. I want to give you um, this visual, and if you are following along with me on social media, you will see this visual, but um, picture, if you will, the Venn diagram of five overlapping circles, much like a flower shape, okay? Five overlapping circles in a Venn diagram, each representing its own category or domain factors that are contributing to complex picky eating. On the top, above the surface, as I like to say when thinking about it from the iceberg theory point of view um, in relevance to complex picky eating, on the top is behavioral backslash environmental. So behavioral environmental. And then as we move around the categories, we have trauma, biochemical nutritional, also like slashed, (laughs) structural functional, also one category, and medical. So again, that's behavioral, environmental, trauma, biochemical, nutritional, structural, functional, and medical as a Venn diagram. And we can use any case, any child's case, with this complex picky eating paradigm, this Venn diagram, we can use it to kind of break down any case and look at these underlying factors. And I named it this, the complex picky eating paradigm, because I am committed to helping create a paradigm shift in how the world views complex picky eating, fellow feeding specialists included in that. While we could use this new paradigm on a case-by-case basis, Today, we're going to use it as a general overview to explore complex picky eating in children and individuals who have autism spectrum disorders. This episode will primarily focus on children, but the the same thoughts and strategies can be applied or tailored accordingly for teens and adults who have autism as well. So let's dive deeper. We're talking about autism spectrum disorders from this very holistic overall viewpoint, thinking specifically about what the causes of complex picky eating may be. And first and foremost, just want to lay this out very, very, um, uh, you know, first and foremost, blatantly. All children and individuals with autism are so different. And I know that I probably don't need to make that disclaimer for those of you listening here, but I just want to keep this reminder um, here because, you know, if your child was just diagnosed, you know, or maybe your child wasn't just diagnosed, maybe your child has been diagnosed, but maybe your experience with autism has only been with the children with autism that have been in your child's class, you know, or something like that. Like maybe your experience with autism is limited. And so just another reminder that all individuals with autism are very, very different. And while there may be commonalities and overlapping similarities between them, which is what qualifies them for the diagnostic label of autism in the first place, 
are those overlapping similarities. We, we just need to look at them all as unique individuals for everything, but especially as it relates to their unique health needs and their complex picky eating, which you know, like after all, there is a a reason, there are many reasons I use that word complex when describing the nature of their eating habits because it is complex in nature. In reality, many of the children on the spectrum who have complex picky eating beyond what's developmentally appropriate would likely be considered to have a pediatric feeding disorder, diagnosably. So, and, and if you're wondering what is developmentally appropriate and what exactly is a pediatric feeding disorder and, um, you know, more of, more of that breakdown, please go check out episode four of this podcast. It is titled, Is Your Child's Picky Eating a Developmental Phase or a More Complex Issue? Where you can learn more and I've really um, spent, spent a more dedicated time on that topic. But if you are here and your child has autism and you resonate with this term complex picky eating, they probably do have complex picky eating. It probably is not just developmentally appropriate. Um, It's not uncommon for children with autism to have complex picky eating or a pediatric feeding disorder, unfortunately. However, As I mentioned, the cases are varying from child to child, which matters because the way that you address the complex picky eating should be led and informed by the underlying root causes of why that child is having challenges with feeding and mealtimes in the first place. So let's explore these underlying causes specific to autism using this complex picky eating paradigm. First up, we're going to start with that behavioral environmental category. This is the category that I said was was top, above the surface. If we're using that iceberg theory, I want you to think about that as like, this is the 10% that you can see above the iceberg, and then what you can't see, what we're going to talk about after this, um, falls underneath the, the surface of the water, and is that 90% of the iceberg underneath the water that you really can't see. Um, And that 90-10%, you know, that's like all theoretical in this moment for example purposes. But you get what I'm saying. This is that above the surface level that you are going to be able to observe and reflect upon. Whether that's during the meal, but also before and after the meal. To gain more information and insights on how to support this child with feeding and mealtimes. So, you know, some examples, some questions to ponder that would be in this behavioral and environmental category, which, you know, okay, pause. Sometimes mm, you may wonder why I don't break it up behavioral is one and then environmental is one and structural is one. Like, you know, these, these categories that I backslash and keep as one, it's because they... To me, it felt like they really couldn't be separated. And it felt like all of these categories are overlapping, but oftentimes behavior and environmental factors go very hand in hand. 
and influence each other so um so closely that they it felt like they needed to be warranted it warranted them being one category as their own similarly the biochemical nutritional aspects and um, as well as the structural and functional aspects. I didn't break those up into their own because they are so closely related that they really kind of like are the same thing. They're synonymous, but they could also be broken up. So that's why they're backslashed and um, split rather than dropping it into one word or making it into various categories. I hope that makes sense. I, I know that it will if you if you see the visual and when you see the visual, which again, this is like the entire framework um, used in my course, Naturally Navigating Picky Eating. So it actually, the course teaches parents um, how to use the framework for their own child and then let that lead them into, okay, this is the reason why my child is, you know, having this complex picky eating and here's what I do about it. Here's what I can do today at home by myself and how do I know if I need professional help? Okay, yes, no, I do or I don't and if I do, who do I go to? And so it really is meant to help, as the title says, parents naturally navigate complex picky eating. So, Back to this behavioral environmental category, some questions that I like to think about for this are, you know, again, back to what can we observe? What are the behaviors that the child is doing before, during, and after the meal? Are they staying at the table? Are they getting up from the table? Are they wandering and then they won't come back or they will come back? What is the environment set up like? Is it calm? Is it chaotic? Is it noisy? Is it bright? What are their emotions like? Are they stressed or are they calm? Are they disengaged or are they engaged? Are they calm and regulated and ready for the meal or are they clearly dysregulated and unable to attend the meal for various reasons? And what about the environmental factors? What about the family members, the parents, the siblings, etc., whoever else is present? What are their emotional states like? Are they all sitting together? Are they talking to one another? Are they including the child? Are there screens distracting them? What about scents in the environment? Is the smell of the food really strong? Is it sweet? Is it savory? Is it fishy? Are there synthetic fragrances in the environment? Is there a candle burning? One of those plug-in scents, you know, those like wax melts. Is there one of those going? What about, could was the table just wiped down with disinfectants and now that smell is in the kitchen, it's in the room? Maybe not noticeable for everybody, but um, for children who have autism who are chemical sensitive and have uh, different sensory processing um, challenges, most of them, um, that matters. All of these factors relate to the bio, I'm sorry, to the behavioral and or environmental factors that play a role in complex picky eating. 
And all of these factors matter for all children, but especially for those with autism. As I mentioned, children with autism have difficulties with, um, with sensory processing, with properly bringing in the information from the, their environment and from within their own body and like integrating it and understanding it and making sense of it. So meaning that their, their body, their brain, their central nervous system receives information in a distorted way compared to someone without autism. This is very common among children and individuals with autism, and it has so much to do with feeding and mealtimes. The task of feeding and eating itself is incredibly sensory involved, and parents and therapists and caregivers and, you know, everyone who would be feeding and eating with these children... um, they can help support these kids by setting up the environment for success and being mindful not to add anything to the environment that may be unnecessary or distracting for them to deal with at the mealtime. So some concrete examples of that would be um, making sure that the environment is synthetic fragrance-free. Candles, plug-ins, sprays, people wearing strong perfumes or colognes, get rid of all of that. There's just get rid of all of it. Children with autism have higher rates of multiple chemical sensitivities than the higher than the general population. And even in those who don't have an obvious chemical sensitivity issue, it's still a good idea because adding it to the sensory information that a child is already having to deal with, um, like uh, navigating Uh, this sensory information on top of navigating the meal it's just unnecessary it's burdensome Um, and then additionally fragrance as a term is a labeling loophole so in that one word fragrance there can be thousands of toxicant chemicals that were never properly tested for human or environmental safety and they don't have to disclose them because they all get put under this labeling loophole and you know, they say, oh, it's proprietary and, you know, whatever. We're just going to put all these chemicals under fragrance, perfume, cologne, these labeling loopholes. Um, and, you know, these companies, they just, they don't deserve your money and these products don't belong in your home. All of these products have natural replacements that are much less burdensome on your child and family's total load. One of the easiest ways that you can help lower your child and family's total load or your body burden or toxic load um, is to remove fragrance from your home. So obviously there are going to be things, and if you start flipping over all of your products right now and you look at the labels, you'll see fragrances in a lot of things if you haven't already taken notice of this. Um, So first and foremost, start with what's not necessary. Things like Febreze, things like candles, things like those wax melts. Like literally they they have no no place in your home. You don't need them for anything. So throw those out immediately, please. And then other things, let it, you know, run out and then buy a cleaner, greener alternative. But that's a whole other topic. Um, But even things like natural essential oils, okay? Let's just go with that. Let's say... 
you're totally um, low-tax, non-tax, whatever, and you're using essential oils. Even though it's natural and that's all wonderful and all of that, excuse me, there is a time and a place to diffuse them. Hold off at mealtimes. Let the food be the star of the scent show. And if it's something like fish or you know that your child's going to be overwhelmed by the smell of the meal, try to cook it or grill it outside if at all possible. Or, um, you know, open a window during cooking and tone it down before the meal time. Another concrete example of supporting your child with autism from an environmental perspective would be considering the lights and the sounds of the environment. Is the lighting calm? Could you make it calmer? Try to avoid fluorescent lighting if possible and go for more of a soft light or even better a natural light if it's if the sun is out where you are. What about environmental noises? Is the news blaring in the background? <laughs> I I say that with a giggle because when I was when I was home Sometimes my dad will put on the news in the background while they're eating dinner. And it's just like, I mean, they're always covering a bunch of negative. It's just blasting. It just is like too much even for someone like me, right? So just as an adult who does not have autism and if it's that distracting for me to eat, you know, like you just have to consider that for your kids. Um even if it's not the news, like even if it's something that the child likes, that can be even more distracting, right? Because now they just want to watch the TV. Is there a TV or a tablet going to keep them in a daze while they're eating? Well, I guess if they're eating, you could say, well, it's not that big of a deal. I've worked with families that say, this is the only way I can get them to eat. Um, That could be a whole another topic for a whole nother time and maybe maybe I will put that on the list of things to talk about um I don't want you to shame yourself and guilt yourself if that's the only way that you can get your child to eat I would rather your child eat than not eat of course but that um is something that you would want to change because they're not interacting with the food they are pacified by the screen and it's it's not increasing their awareness of the food do you see what I'm saying like that if you take away the screen would they eat it independently probably not because they might not even remember the interaction with the food that they had and remember that they even had this food before because they were pacified by a screen the last time that they had it do you see what I'm saying um in addition to that the um, blue light from screens that enters the child's eyes, it, it, is, it is adding to their like nervous system regulation and it's putting them in a place where they're not necessarily in proper rest and digest. So, yeah. Try to avoid that if possible, but also know that if that's something that um, you're dealing with right now, you know, you can work from that. And it's not something that you need to beat yourself up over or anything like that. It's just something that, you know, you, you want to move away from sooner rather than later because it will only become more difficult 
over time and as they get older. So, okay, jumping off of the screen time during mealtime soapbox, thank you for letting me veer off there, but coming back to in relevance to behavior, um, obviously these strategies that I'm throwing out in this category are broad and general and all behavioral strategies would clearly need to be tailored to what's going on. But something that I wanted to share generally in regards to this sensory processing component. Um, So too often, well-meaning parents and even professionals will see behavior. um, They'll see something as behavioral, but it's actually stemming more from sensory processing challenges. And the behavior may be this, but it is just actually the communication. So what are they telling us? What is this behavior telling us? For example, if the child is having a hard time focusing on the meal, maybe they seem spacey or visibly distracted. By what? How can you support their environment? If nothing visibly obvious, then go back to thinking about background noise. Is it too loud in some way? Is the environment too chaotic for language processing? Um, You know, just thinking about, okay, is there something environmentally that we can change that could be contributing to this child's complex picky eating? Can Can we alter it in some way? So, but to support overall regulation, something that I find can help all children, really, um, because it supports regulation, which when I say regulation, what I'm really meaning is, is, is this child calm? Does this child have a calm nervous system right now? Is their nervous system regulated? So a concept that I, um, that I want to share on this is called heavy work. And Heavy work really is like um, ways that we are exerting these bigger muscles and kind of expelling some energy. And it really helps us to, to regulate our nervous system, as I mentioned. So think about, you know, adults that have to work out in order to feel good for the day. Like those adults that you know that are like, if I don't, if I don't lift, I get so worked up or, you know, maybe, maybe they actually are, um, the type of people who after a a rough day, they have to work out to calm themselves down. This could be looked at as an adult version of heavy work, if you will. But anyways, consider this, um, consider ways to incorporate heavy work for regulation before mealtimes. So start, you know, 30 minutes, 20 minutes before mealtimes and try to figure out how to incorporate big body play. So pushing, pulling, climbing, uh, you know, really exerting those big body muscles and getting some energy out. Pinterest has a ton of ideas for this. Um, a ton of really great like occupational therapy blogs have so many good ideas for this. You'll want to be careful with doing anything that's too activating of the vestibular system. And when I say that, I mean like, okay, so your vestibular system, it it controls your balance and um, 
has a lot to do with the sensory system and really think about like these think about the inner ear right and if you're spinning 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 or you're doing something where like a kid would have to bend down and their head would be upside down um so maybe they're like bending down to get a ball or they're you know uh they jump into a ball pit or something like that and their head um you know goes down anything that that's going to be like too much where your ears are going to be kind of spinning or upside down that would activate the vestibular system and for some kids that can be regulating but it also can be really alerting and really um energizing for some kids it just depends on the kiddo right so I've seen kids with autism go kind of either way on that sometimes um it helps the spinning helps and it can calm them down and regulate them and others I've seen it really like ramp up their behavior versus calming them so if you see that that's the case for your kid um you would just want to do like more heavy work types of activities after um those vestibular activities like so no spinning or bending in ways that would put the head upside down but you know think about playing on a place that um you know running where you run and like swing on a swing uh, and you lift your feet up and you have to hold it or different things like that um even playing with like even playing with a play-doh where they're like pushing and mashing and you know that type of that could even be potentially considered a heavy work. Basically, like I said, you're activating those bigger muscles in your body and it's giving this like calm down to the nervous system. If you're an occupational therapist, <laughs> please forgive um, my explanation. I'm trying to keep this parent as parent-friendly as possible um, and I hope that I did heavy work justice on that. <laughs> but I find that heavy work is helpful for all kiddos. Um, but you just want to be careful with too much of that spinny activity, anything spinning. Um, and then if you're doing that, you want to make sure that you're giving your kid time to transition. So if you know that it's going to be hard for them to walk away from that activity you might consider using a timer or a heads up that hey dinner's almost ready mealtime's almost ready when this timer goes off beep 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 it means it's time to transition or however that looks for your family um our next let's move to the next category the next category is trauma and i feel like this one may be obvious in terms of like the obvious trauma causes but let's go just a little further on this because I think I tend to use this term of trauma um, broadly and loosely when it comes to complex picky eating when we're thinking about trauma we're not just thinking about any sort of obvious or emotional trauma although those are included but it's not just limited to that we're also thinking about situations that we may not generally consider to be obvious trauma. Trauma isn't always what makes sense to everyone. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to everyone. When I think about trauma in terms of complex picky eating, I'm literally meaning like any sort of physical, emotional, 
deep-rooted, deeply stored trauma that has imprinted upon this person in whatever way that has now impacted them and is now involved in their complex picky eating. This is really specific to each individual and some parents or providers may not really be able to pinpoint any relevant trauma. Um, and my, my paradigm doesn't insist that everyone will have each category involved in their complex picky eating, but it highlights that this trauma category is a very real factor, so much so that I felt it needed its own category. I almost lumped it in with, um, with medical, but I, I, I needed to separate it into its whole own category. For some children, trauma may be that eating has never been easy or enjoyable, even when, like, since they were little. I've known kids where this trauma, I'm doing trauma in air quotes here, but like this, this trauma category wasn't really a major trauma per se. Um, it really overlapped with medical category and but there were lasting effects imprinted on that child so like children who struggle to eat or have an event that makes it difficult to eat from the beginning of their lives they tend to be more likely um, children who will have challenges with eating later and it may it may look like eating's fine and then something may resurface but it may be still stemming back to that early trauma so along the lines of trauma i want to make a note on trauma prevention as it relates to feeding and meal times please please do not ever force feed your children Please do not give your children ultimatums to eat. Like, you must eat this to do that, or you must eat this to get that. Um, while in your mind, that, se- that might seem benign, some people may not think that that is um, that detrimental. In the child's mind, it may be imprinting some actual trauma response around food because once you put that child into fight or flight mode with these force feedings and ultimatums and flooding them and they're unable to escape they go from rest and digest to fight or flight and once they are in fight or flight it's kind of like what's the point because the potential for this negative association with that food and with this experience is now, I mean, it's there. It's, it's now there. And for some, it might be, you know, just a terrible event and they move on and they get over it. But for others, it may be something that imprints upon them. And then you wonder, you know, um, in the child's mind it may be imprinting actual trauma response around food where the impacts last far beyond that interaction, right? So when I'm working with clients, I specifically ask 
that no other professionals or providers, teachers, caregivers working with that child use food in their sessions. Not in the activities, not as rewards, not at all. But that could be a whole separate episode (laughs) in the future maybe. Basically, I want all pressure to eat or all pressure to consume that food to be removed. And I know that that might seem counterintuitive at first, but please hear me when I say this, that our goal is not to get your child to be simply obedient and consume the food. Our goal isn't simply obedient consumption of a food. Our goal is a happy, healthy child who consumes that food willingly and independently without fear and without coercion. We aren't going for X amount of bites of this or that during mealtimes. We're going for sustainability and lasting results over time. We're going for a healthy relationship with food and trust at mealtimes, right? So if you have been someone who has done an ultimatum or you've done a force feed or whatever, like just totally take this opportunity to let it go and forgive yourself for it. Don't hold any guilt on it if you do. Um, This isn't meant to make anyone feel shame or guilt in any sort of way. It's meant to um, keep any sort of negative response to food from happening is my intention. And so my hope is that now you know it is not the best way. And again, our goal isn't simply obedient consumption of food. You might get a kid to eat that food with ultimatums. You might. But is that child going to independently choose that food the next time they're offered that food? I don't know. Basically, if the event triggers a person to the point where their nervous system is then triggered in the future because of that original event, then I feel there's some sort of trauma to sort through with it, right? And that's using trauma as a loose and broad term, but something that we need to think about from a emotional perspective that is beyond just behavior that can be explained. So this could even be something like the child choked or like seriously choked on a piece of steak a year ago and they haven't eaten steak or anything like that um, or that resembles it or reminds them of it since then and when they see it they become anxious and they refuse to eat it. Sometimes kids choke and it's not always super obvious. Like it could have been something that happened that the parent isn't even aware of but the child remembers. Um, And even if they can't articulate it, and even if they can't consciously identify it, or verbally identify it, like, is it possible that it is imprinted upon them, and it is a protective mechanism? I believe it is. Another example 
kind of gross, but I'm just thinking of broad examples here. Maybe they catch a stomach flu from daycare or school or something, and they're throwing up. And when they're throwing up, they see the food or smell the food that they had that day. And then they refuse that food and anything that reminds them of it moving forward. Was the trauma of that experience, of these projectile vomits, was that then imprinted on them in such a way that's now made them fearful or apprehensive of that food? It may not make sense to an observing adult who knows that that food wasn't the cause of making that child sick, but it doesn't need to make sense because for that child's nervous system, it may be very, very real to them. Depending on their language processing and their levels of understanding, it may or may not be possible to help them understand and feel safe enough with that food. Trauma can be obvious, like major medical trauma, like traumatic brain injuries, or something like having a feeding tube placed at a young age. It could also be emotional, like neglect, or like malnourished children who have faced hunger, um, These are the more obvious traumas that can absolutely play a role, of course. But I just wanted to share some perspective on what other examples could potentially be seen as traumatic from the perspective of a child. And now let's move on to the category of medical. This one is probably straightforward, like in definition, but... um, just for the sake of, you know, naming it, it's when there's a known primary diagnosis or medical condition or disorder or a known medical reason that is or could be contributing to the child's picky eating in some way, shape, or form. And if you are familiar with my work, you know that I advocate for autism to be viewed as a whole body condition. Most of these children and individuals have underlying co-occurring health conditions that can and do absolutely contribute to complex picky eating, like GERD or reflux issues, chronic constipation, um, GI distress, EOE, FPIs, pans pandas, mitochondria dysfunction, tone issues, and so much more. All of these are medical conditions that, for various reasons, contribute to complex picky eating and autism. These conditions are not uncommon in autism. So when there's also complex picky eating involved, those medical conditions need to be more strongly considered and followed up on as they relate to the complex picky eating. The next category is structural functional. And this is the specialty area of a feeding specialist, most commonly a speech-language pathologist or an occupational therapist. If you resonate with concerns in this category for your child as I'm going over it, I encourage you to speak with a pediatric speech-language pathologist um, feeding specialist or an occupational therapist feeding specialist for your child's individual needs. SLPs are my top preference, um, but I want to recognize that that may very well be my own bias because I am one and I know our training. And um, yeah, but I have met many skilled OTs 
in this area of feeding. So if you have easier access to an OT versus an SLP, then that's okay to start with. Um, Sometimes if you're really lucky, you'll find an SLP OT combo team. Um, then that, and that's always great to have two different sets of eyes or two different professionals. But, um, if possible, you would want to have a feeding specialist who is knowledgeable in the structural functional aspects, meaning that they are familiar with typical mouth development and typical feeding development because in order to see what is atypical and to treat what is atypical, you have to know and understand typical, okay? Um, so as the professional, it's up to them to discern when a referral is appropriate for your child or like when their ca- your child's case is beyond their comfort level. Just know that not all feeding specialists are created equally, Um, but I've talked more about that, I believe, in episode four. I cover that in depth, so check that out when you get a chance. But by structural functional, I'm talking about all of the structural and functional aspects involved in feeding in mealtimes. I'm talking about anatomy and physiology, not just of the mouth, but the whole body. What structural and or functional aspects are involved? Gross motor, fine motor, oral motor, um, which is our finest fine motor, the movements of the mouth, our respiratory system, our nervous system, digestive system. Feeding is a highly, highly complex and involved task, which involves our sensory and motor systems. And it's we're, it's just so involved. It's... Feeding is a highly involved task (laughs) involving our sensory and motor systems, sending information to and from the brain. Our brain and our body is constantly responding in this way. So if there's any sort of distortion with the processing of this information, which would fall under functional, right, could be related to structural, but not always, it may be likely that it could impact the meal times. You can see here that this would be the overlap, right, between that behavioral environmental category that I previously mentioned. Um, the sensory processing challenges, they can appear as behavior, but it's really stemming back to this overlapping, underlying factor here in that in this structural functional category. So take a step back and observe your child from a sensory and motor perspective. What you can see in the whole body, what you can observe in their whole body, you can infer that it may be happening within their mouth. So does your child have obvious sensory processing challenges? Are they overwhelmed by having messy hands? Are they overwhelmed by certain textures? Generally, not just with foods. What about sounds and lights? Does your child appear clumsy? 
Do they have difficulties with speech? Are they drooling a lot? Do they need to chew or suck on something often? Maybe it's to self-soothe. Maybe it's beyond what would be considered typical, though, um, in terms of chewing and needing to suck on something for self-soothing. When they go to a, a new park or a new playground, do they run up the equipment easily? Or do they have to watch and observe the other kids before they do something? Does it look like they confidently coordinate their body? I had a physical therapist that I worked with in early intervention a few years ago that was really brilliant. She said, watch what the child does when they get to the top of a new slide. Do they put their feet right out in front of them? Do they look like they really need to sit and think about what to do with their body before they go down that slide? If they pause and they hesitate like that, it just might mean that maybe they've got something more going on with their motor planning. These are questions that I ask and things that I'm looking for when trying to get a better perspective of the child's overall structure and function. While these questions may not feel like they're related to complex picky eating, I just want to assure you that they are. Remember that the body is a whole, the child is a whole person. We are looking at this from a holistic perspective. Some obvious signs that there is a structural and or functional involvement would be um, obvious asymmetry of the body, whether that is their face or their whole body. When they run, when they walk, when they're just sitting, do both sides of the body look symmetrical most often? Or are they favoring one side of the other? Or is one side just not coordinating with the other side? Um, are they drooling excessively without, without the excuse of like, oh, they're teething or anything like that? Um, do they avoid certain textures or consistencies of foods completely, regardless of the taste or smell or category of food? Is there, is there one certain texture that they always avoid? What about like other obvious oral motor concerns? So maybe they have um, speech issues. Maybe they're diagnosed with apraxia, childhood apraxia. Um, this isn't always something that is overlapping. You can have feeding concerns without speech concerns, and you can have speech concerns without feeding concerns. But in my experience, it's not uncommon for there to be overlap. It's the same anatomy, but different motor plans. Different motor plans, same anatomy. Other structural functional issues or signs may include, but are certainly not limited to, tethered oral tissues such as tongue ties, lip ties, um, buccal ties, which is like a like in the cheek, um, having a high arched um, palate, airway issues, like if you see your child is mouth breathing chronically, whether awake or at night and or both, that is a concern. Um, we would want to figure out why exactly they're mouth is open and um, what's going on there because that could be contributing to complex picky eating and looking at tonsils and adenoids as well 
And just because tonsils and adenoids, if they're large, just because they're large doesn't always mean they have to come out. Sometimes, stay with me here, sometimes when you have something going on like a tongue tie and or low tone, which causes this weak jaw or this um, proclivity to have a open mouth posture, right? So it's like a, a structural issue creates this open mouth posture and now we're mouth breathing, right? Now we're mouth breathing and at night, we're mouth breathing when we're awake, maybe one or the other, maybe both. Well, your tonsils and adenoids are kind of back there acting like a filter, right? So when you're you're breathing through your mouth and not your nose, you're making those tonsils and adenoids work over time. And sometimes that chronic mouth breathing actually happens because of something else, but then causes these enlarged tonsils and adenoids. And Sometimes as providers or and as parents, you may say, oh, tonsils and adenoids are huge. Well, no wonder they're breathing through their mouth because they're trying to get more air in. Well, maybe, but it's like a chicken or the egg thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Like the, the tonsils and adenoids are large because of the mouth breathing. Sometimes, not always, not always. I just want to say that, but I... I didn't know that correlation, and I'm going to be honest with you, as a provider, there are a couple kiddos that I look back and I think, okay, I sent that kid to have their tonsils and adenoids removed. I made, I wrote a whole report supporting it, you know, gave it, gave it to the uh, ENT, and, um, you know, now I wonder, like, what if they had some myofunctional therapy or, you know, some support where we got that mouth closed and we got them breathing through their nose. Is it possible through good hygiene, nutrition, and um, training them to get into proper resting position of their mouth and face? Could we make those tonsils and adenoids settle it down and come back to normal size? I believe in some cases we can, but this is just, (laughs) this is just me, um, chatting, right? This is all for educational purposes only, but anyways, okay. So who, who are you going to consult if you've got a structural or functional issue? You guys, again, consult with an SLP or OT, a speech language pathologist or occupational therapist. Remember that not all SLPs and not all OTs are feeding specialists. You have to ask. You also are going to want to ask about their approach because sometimes uh, let's just say we're not always on, on the same page, all of us. Okay. So take what resonates, leave what doesn't find someone who, um, resonates with you and whose approach is going to foster a healthy, long lasting relationship with food. And now my favorite category to talk about biochemical nutritional, 
this, what we're about to talk about here, these considerations are super, super common in autism. And I feel like this is the area that most traditional feeding specialists are missing. They're overlooking. And that's probably at no fault to their own because if you go back to episode three, I talk more about holistic nutrition and bioindividual nutrition and how there is no one size fits all diet. And I talk about the differences in nutrition professionals and nutrition paradigms in our society today and specifically in the United States. It just seems like there's so much nuance and differing opinion in the world of nutrition. And I feel like because the world of traditional standard American nutrition, like a lot of that is a lot of these, a lot of these recommendations, um, are outdated or they're not based on the greatest science and things like that. And so because of this like issue in the world of nutrition, generally speaking, like if we don't even have all the world of of nutrition on the same page, then of course people who are feeding professionals, not nutrition professionals, are going to struggle with the concepts if they or not struggle with the concepts but they might not know right they might not know what they're looking for I didn't many people don't if you eat the standard American diet then you're not really recognizing like what the issues with the standard American diet are enough to not eat it yourself so how would you recognize that what the issues it's causing in the clients does that make sense I hope it does. Um, So anyways, this is something that completely like just revamped my whole career trajectory. Not only the thought that autism is a whole body condition, but all of these conditions that I really wanted to serve as a speech language pathologist, almost all of these conditions are whole body conditions, right? Because the body influences the brain and vice versa. And anyways, there are many kids, like really there's an epidemic of kids who are, who are experiencing these biochemical and nutritional considerations that we're about to cover here in this category. Um, and yes, we're talking specific to autism, but just know that this is far beyond autism. And actually, autism is the reason why I learned about all these issues spanning beyond autism. I started with autism and then realized, oh my gosh, this is like all of these kids. A lot of the research that currently exists exists on these topics that I'm about to cover, it is based on children with autism or children with um, ADHD and or children with ADHD. But I believe that it can be applied to all children with developmental conditions, including those that are caused by known genetic causes like Down syndrome. Those children, even though Down syndrome is genetically caused, those children are more genetically predispositioned 
to be sensitive to foods and um, toxicant chemicals and environmental stressors, okay? So food additives and things like that. Um, And kids with complex picky eating and or many children with pediatric feeding disorders, um, you know, like you can address the structural and functional aspects. You can address the behavioral and environmental factors. You can address the medical factors and the trauma factors, but you can't not address these biochemical nutritional factors too. Like it all has to be addressed. And I just feel like the world of feeding therapy and the world of traditional nutrition and traditional medicine is missing this in such a major way. Um, Not just for kids with autism, but like all these kids. So here are the biochemical nutritional considerations that I just want to run down real quick today. Um, But you can learn a lot more about this in episodes 3 through 12, where I really focus heavily on this area. Um, So these include, but are not limited to, the opiate excess response, where foods like gluten... Um, casein, the protein found in um, dairy products, and soy are creating an opiate response in the body, which creates an addictive drive. These foods, um, gluten, soy, and casein, also release free glutamate, which is neuroexcitatory, and For many of these children, they have a very difficult time processing these high amounts. And for various biochemical reasons, it creates this over-neuroexcitatory response in the brain, which then creates this um, addictive-like response. So... Okay, you know MSG, probably. You might be familiar with MSG. Think of this response is very similar to when someone has MSG. But it's not from MSG. It's from a, it's from gluten and casein and soy and other foods, but these are like the main ones um, for the children that uh, have autism and complex picky eating. It creates this over-excitatory response. Um, And then similarly, food intolerances and food sensitivities can create exorphins, which then fit into the endorphin receptors in the body. And basically what that means is like, it's your feel-good response. It's your like, and when you think of endorphins, think of uh, runner's high right? Exorphins are, you're getting it from a outside source and it is creating an exorphin that then fits into the receptors in the body that then creates these intensive, intensive cravings. So some children, it might look like it's their favorite food. 
Well, is it their favorite food or are they physically, literally addicted to it? Whether that's from the opiate response, the glutamate response, an exorphin response, whatever response. Um, and there are other factors, but I mean, we're literally just skimming the surface here. But, you know, you have to wonder and you have to observe that. And I just feel like that's not commonly understood or commonly talked about. And it's an area that people love to say, there's not a lot of research to support it. You know what? We like, how much is enough? Truly, how much research is enough? Because there's enough to start doing some legitimate trials. But if you understand how research is funded, you'll know exactly why these trials are very hard to do. And when it comes to nutrition, it's very hard to like design that study anyways, right? Like a, a true um, a true gold standard study would be very difficult to do with nutrition, but you can't patent nutrition, right? And so there's not a lot of money to be made in that, blah, blah, blah. We can get into that in another time. And we did in the holistic nutrition episode. So please go check out episode three. Coming back to it though... Um, you know, really when it all comes down to it, I want to know like what's creating inflammation? What foods are creating an inflammatory response and are hurting more than they're helping? Because oftentimes for whatever, um, neurobiological reason, those foods play a role in picky eating, whether that means that, um, they're causing a food aversion or an intensive craving. It can be, you know, it's food dependent, child dependent, but something that you need to think about. Um, and then on that note, deficiencies, when we're talking about nutritional aspects, deficiencies, um, there are certain nutritional deficiencies that are known to cause distortions in our sensory perceptions of smell and taste, zinc being one of them. Many, 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 many of these children are very deficient in zinc. Um, Zinc is a safe bet to consider being one of the first um, supplements. If you are going to use a supplement, Uh, zinc is a really good one to consider because You can get that in liquid forms. Um, Dr. Jockers makes one that's like just from organic guava leaf. I don't have an affiliate or affiliation or anything like that with them, but I have recommended that um, to my clients with good success because it's a a liquid food-focused source of zinc by Dr. Jockers. And then also the Mighty Minerals Blend by Organic Olivia. I'll link both of these below. Um, I actually am an affiliate with Organic Olivia because I love her products so much. And I, I find myself recommending Mighty Minerals often for my clients just to give them a herbal source of um, some mineral boosts. And it works herbs they work beautifully in this synergistic way where it's not just isolating one mineral or another it is 
giving a blend of minerals that work synergistically to raise themselves. So like for example, zinc, while I did just say you can give that in isolation, you want to be careful because you don't want to throw off your zinc copper ratio for your child. This is the importance of working with a nutrition provider, right? So that there are things that you may not know. Um, but you don't want to be on zinc for an extended period of time without checking your levels of zinc and copper. But anyways, that is why I really like Mighty Minerals because it is a good source of a blend of minerals that you can raise that level. But I often will do the zinc in isolation um, with a zinc test, whether that is a biomarker test or a informal zinc assay taste test. So, okay. A big piece of this puzzle, talking about biochemical and nutritional, a big piece of this puzzle that cannot be overlooked, it's critical to discuss it here, is the child's gut health. So if your child is having food reactions, you need to go focus on their gut health for sure. Um, again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because I've really, really, really provided a ton of free, valuable content um, in all of the previous episodes leading up to this, but specifically episodes 3 through 12 focus really heavily on this area. It's a big passion area of mine. I consider this to be um, like my area of expertise as a holistic functional nutritional therapy practitioner. Um, You'll find a lot of strategies in previous episodes, but some strategies that you might think about now in addition to adding in um, some, some supplementation for support is start where they are and take an inventory of what they do eat and clean it up as you can. So look at getting rid of any synthetic additives in food. Go back to Holistic Nutrition episode 3 and learn more about that. Rule out any addictions to food additives. So different artificial flavors and different food additives and things like that, they actually can contribute to these biochemical like reactions in your child that's causing an addiction. So you can just go ahead and rule out addictions to food additives by getting rid of them because They're hurting more than they're helping most often. So you're focusing on cleaning up the diet, removing those food additives, and this is why like, going organic can be helpful and is important because when you go organic, that seal of USDA organic pretty much eliminates many of these synthetic food um, additives that are the most, uh, that are often the most, uh, disruptive or causing the most harm to your gut and, um, like (laughs) to you, you see, you know what I mean? Epigenetically, all that. So think about like taking an inventory of what your child eats. What foods are they craving? Like, are there any foods that they would just live off of totally if it were up up to them, the only food they'd ever eat. Sometimes we intensely crave the foods that we are reacting to, 
and this is really, really common in children with autism. Your child may quite literally be physically addicted to their favorite foods. Most common are gluten-containing foods, um, dairy, casein-containing foods, soy, uh, refined sugar-containing foods. Over time, it can be helpful to eliminate these. And that might sound really overwhelming, right? If it does, I, I'm really, really encouraging you to go back and listen to the previous episodes because that's literally like what most of this podcast is about is that transition and the why and the how and like all of these connections to why it makes sense to do it and why it makes a difference, okay? Um, but as you're introducing new foods... You want to be adding new foods before you're completely removing and like overhauling the diet, right? Especially if your child is a complex picky eater, they might only have a handful of foods. So you don't want to just go cold turkey and overhaul the diet overnight. Um, You know, uh, that phrase, they'll eat when they're hungry. I don't apply that to the children that I work with because these children, they will hold out. And I've never had an issue where, like, a child has had to be hospitalized or anything like that, but I've certainly heard of cases like that. And so I never encourage a cold turkey approach um, for children with autism who have a complex picky eating involvement. I encourage you to do a simultaneous sustainable transition where you are cleaning it up and adding in new, and cleaning it up, and adding in new, and it's a process. And as the underlying food cravings calm down for whatever like biochemical reasons, um, and as the nutrient levels are boosted, and as, you know, just kind of everything comes into balance biochemically and nutritionally, we should see openness to new foods increase. And when considering which foods to introduce as new foods, I want you to consider the concept of food chaining. So think about the qualities of the foods that they already accept and love. Can you change what they already love and they're already eating to increase the acceptance to change first? Like, are they resilient enough where... You can change their favorite food, change the appearance of it. You're not even adding a new food. You're just changing what they already eat. Are they going to be okay? Or is that going to like cause chaos at mealtime? Because if so, you might want to start there, right? Um, so like, for example, if you, if you know that they will, they just like have to have this certain pouch, like, you know, those squeezy pouches I've got this one kid in mind as I'm talking about this. Um, He only would eat pouches. And he only would eat certain pouches out of certain, like, pouch, pouch containers where he could see visibly what it was. Well, if he always had to see the label to see what it was, then how would we ever transition away from that, right? So, in that case, could you say... Will they let you squeeze that pouch into a bowl to be eaten with a spoon? Or could you squeeze it into a cup to be, like, drank with a straw in that way? 
or maybe they always eat the same chicken nuggets and they always eat them whole. Instead of eating them whole, would they let you cut them up into bits? Because then, so, okay, we're not just looking for their resiliency to change. We're setting the stage for quality upgrades. We're setting the stage for transitions to occur as you're cleaning up the diet. So going along the lines of these examples, if you're able to get them to accept that pouch with a bowl and a spoon or a cup and a straw versus only from that pouch with that label, then soon maybe you could add in a different type of pouch for nutrient variety or when upgrading product quality um, or to sneak in supplement. (laughs) But be careful, be careful. It has to go undetected. And I wouldn't do that if the child was super limited. Because if you destroy trust with one of their preferred foods when they're that limited, you can really burn yourself. So <laughs> I almost wish I hadn't said that. But, but that is also an idea um, in that type of puree texture. You can sometimes get different liquid su- supplements. Um, but okay, going back to the chicken nugget example. If they accept the chicken nugget cut up versus whole nuggets, then when you upgrade the chicken nuggets to better quality, maybe you're going organic and or gluten-free chicken, gluten-free chicken-free, gluten-free casein-free chicken nuggets, um, you'll be able to cut some of the new with some of the old and phase them in slowly. When it's working well with mixing it up and changing the presentation of what they already love, add in your new foods with the concept of food chaining. Thinking about what are their preferred food tastes, food textures, food temperatures. Do they like crunchy? Do they like soft? Do they like a mash? You know, it just really depends on your kiddo. Think about their favorite foods and then branch off of those favorite foods using similar qualities. So if your child is really limited, it's okay to start with fruits versus vegetables because they're sweeter and more enticing to children. And then from there, you can branch to vegetables using sweeter vegetables like sweet potatoes, carrots, parsnips, etc. You can try them as a mash, try them as a hash, try them cubed, try them as sticks or fries, make a soup with some nourishing bone broth. There are so many ways that you can expand your child's diet in a really gentle, sustainable, and nourishing way. These are just some examples. But again, I really encourage you to go back and listen to the episodes prior to this to get more more insights, more strategies, more tips, and more um, of an understanding of this approach of looking at complex picky eating in this whole body, holistic perspective. All right, you guys, that is a wrap on today's episode. Um, As a recap, those areas I want you to consider were behavioral environmental, trauma, biochemical nutritional, structural functional, and medical. This episode, like I said, is the final episode of season one of Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast. And I am so happy to have been able to provide this information that I've laid out here in these first 15 episodes um, that I've been referring to as the like foundational knowledge. I'm so grateful that I was able to take the time to provide it 
um, free to this community to access and come back to and um, send to others who may benefit from this information. Whether you are a parent or a professional um, joining me here and or both, you know, I just really want to take the time again to say thank you for your support and taking the time to listen and learn with me. It really means a lot to me. I have absolutely loved the process of starting and creating these podcast episodes for you all. Um, But admittedly, it is work and a lot of time. And now I know and I have a feel for the commitment level of the types of shows that I am doing and how I prefer to do things. And while I love podcasting, um, I want to take some time moving forward to shift my creative energy and time to focus on my course that I've been working on and promising you all for over a year now, Naturally Navigating Picky Eating. It has really evolved from what I originally had in mind and I'm really, really proud of what it has become and I cannot, re- I cannot wait to release it into the world when it is ready. If you would like to stay connected with me and be the first to know when it releases, as well as when season two of this podcast returns, you can sign up for my free Nourishing Picky Eaters guide that is linked below in the show notes to be placed on my email list. This is what I consider my VIP list. These are the people in my community who are the first to know what I'm up to and what I'm working on behind the scenes of speaking help speaking of health and wellness. So if you would like to jump on that email list, just grab one of the freebies from speakingofhealthandwellness.com or linked in the show notes below. You can also join us in my free Facebook community group and or on Instagram at speakingofhealthandwellness, all one word. I'll link both of those in the show notes below as well. In the meantime, between now and the next season of this podcast, if you haven't already done so, again, go check out those episodes leading up to this one. There are 15 episodes of valuable content and resources to support you along your child and family's health and wellness journey. If you're looking for tailored support for your child and family, I am currently accepting new distance coaching clients at this time that the podcast is released in May 2021. Spots are limited. You can learn more about my distance coaching options and schedule your complimentary discovery call and apply to become a potential distance coaching client at speakingofhealthandwellness.com, which will be linked directly in the show notes below as well. I would be so honored to support you and your family and create a plan to help holistically support your child through a food-focused nutrition, um, gentle mealtime guidance, and developmental strategies approach that you can implement at home tailored to your child and family. Once again, thank you so much for your support and your encouragement during this first season of Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast. I cannot wait to come back for season two and continue providing you with more valuable and supportive content for your child and family and or your clients. Thank you again for joining me. May you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care and talk soon. Thanks again for listening to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast. I'm so grateful you've taken the time. For any of the references mentioned in the show, head over to speakingofhealthandwellness.com. 
If this episode resonated with you or inspired you, it would mean so much to me if you took a moment to subscribe, write a review, share it on social media, or with someone in your life who could really benefit from this information. Your support helps this podcast and the overall message and mission of Speaking of Health and Wellness reach more people. If you share on Instagram, tag me so I can personally thank you for listening. If you're on Facebook, come join our free community group of like-minded parents and professionals. The direct link is in the podcast description. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks again so much and take care.